0: There was a a time where I thought I was an okay dancer, you know, like actual dancing, like on a dance floor, but I did a wedding uh, several summers ago, and it was out in Iowa, Uh, and afterwards somebody said to Katie, um, your husband gave a great message, but he's a bad dancer, and that kind of diminished my whole confidence on the dance floor (laughs) from that point forward. But uh, maybe you can believe it, before that incident, uh, many years before it, um, I had a, I got kind of like I had a coworker who liked dancing, and so he and I would talk about moonwalking, and so there was like a, a period of time where I looked up videos of Michael Jackson moonwalking and watch tutorials about how to do it. And I successfully learned how to moonwalk. It was pretty, it was pretty, well, this isn't quite the the shoes or the floor, you know, it's just, it's just, it's complicated. <laughs> but I haven't done it for quite a long time. You need the right shoes, I mean, probably Michael Jackson didn't, but it's like the right shoes, the right floor. And I actually practiced, I worked at a nursing home in the kitchen and we had to mop the floor and he and I would like use the wet floor to moonwalk across it. So that's where I, I got my practicing in. But the thing about it, if I like, ex- if I just was up here trying to describe to you what moonwalking is and how to moonwalk, you, and I just you know stood here and, or you had a book and you're reading about it with no pictures, you'd be like, "I don't get it. Like how do you do that? Like I need to see someone show it to me how they would do that. And I, a friend of mine had said this story, and I haven't actually like, looked it up to see if it's true, but he said when the Red Cross uh, at first was teaching people how to swim, they were doing it in a classroom. And they would go through all the stuff and all the slides about how to swim. And then they'd get in the water and no one knew how to swim. And so then they realize you can't just tell people how to swim. Like you actually have to be in the water seeing someone do it, trying it, practicing it. And the point of all this is that we often learn, especially complicated things, we learn best through uh, both imitation, seeing someone else do it, and through practice. Uh, that we can't just necessarily have someone tell us what to do, but we actually need to have, have someone show us. We need to practice it. We need to, you know, as I was learning to moonwalk or whatever, you're like looking at the screen and they say do this and then you do it. Then you pause and like come back and check it. You like need to see somebody else, uh, how they're doing it. And this morning we're going to be talking about how to love. How do you learn to love someone? How do you learn to love other people? And if we're going with what I just talked about, it takes imitation and practice. You need to see someone doing it. You need to experience them doing it to you. And then you need opportunities to practice and and do it. In this series, Learning to Love and Be Loved, we're wrapping up this morning. It's been three weeks setting our theme for the year, uh, which is, uh, I mean, maybe no surprise that you were like, you were talking about love last year, but we're talking about love this year too. But really that learning, a, a disciple of Jesus is a learner. That's basically what that word means. And it's learning from Jesus, not in the classroom, but his first disciples traveled around with them. They were learning to love and be loved as they experienced Jesus loving them and telling them, this is how we have a relationship with God. This is how we receive God's love. This is how we love other people. And so they're learning from him how to do that. And we've been answering, what is a disciple? First, that was week one. How do we make one? And now this week is, how do we know we've made one? And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you want to be a Christian, another name of that for that is disciple. And if you make all these personal, you know, instead of what is a disciple, you, we can ask, well... Am I a disciple? What does it mean for me to be a disciple? And then asking, how do we make one? Well, how do I grow as a disciple of Jesus? And lastly today is, how do we know we've made a disciple? You can ask, well, how do I know that I am a disciple of Jesus? What could I look for in my life um, to tell me that I'm actually following him? And so this morning we're basically asking the question, how do you uh, know that you're growing as a Christian? How do you know you're really a disciple of Jesus and the very simple answer that we can give is you are becoming more loving That's how you know if you're a disciple of Jesus that you're becoming more loving and we'll get into how that works You know we need to ask well, how do we become more loving? Uh, like how do you learn to dance or how do you learn to swim? How do you become more loving Do you need to try harder or just kind of wait and ask God make me more loving make me more Loving make me more loving and wait for God to do it not a bad thing to pray for God to do that by the way Is it from memorizing the Bible? Is it from doing more religious activity? Like maybe just the more I'm in this building or the more I'm doing church things, it's kind of like osmosis. Somehow something will happen to me. How do we actually become more loving? How do we grow to be loving people? And we're going to look at two passages that are kind of, uh, not kind of, but are tied together. The first is in John 15. Um, It's page 900. If you're using the Black Bibles here, John 15 is the the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, So New Testament's about the last third or quarter of your Bible. So it's page 900, uh, John chapter 15. This is an amazing passage, and we can't hit everything that is talked about in here, but it's one of those core passages where if you're wondering what does it mean to be a disciple, this is where Jesus uh, lays some of it out. And this is the context here, uh, John 13 to 17. It's Jesus' last night with his disciples. These are like, this is like the last conversations he's having with them, his final instructions. Uh, for following him because he's like, I'm about to die. And here's my instructions for what you can expect and how you can stay connected with me going forward. Let me just read, uh, we're going to read just parts of John 15 and I'll pause as we go. So John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And so I'm just going to pause right there. Actually, let me keep reading. He gives an image for what this looks like. As, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so Jesus, the thing, big theme he says is abide in me, which isn't a word I use in my everyday language, like abiding. Um, it's kind of, it's a Bible word, but another way you could translate it is remain And he says, abide in me. And we need to ask, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to abide in Jesus, to remain in Jesus? How do we do that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There's more we could say, but just pausing there, he said, abide in me. Now he's saying, abide in my love. Getting a little more specific, okay? We're abiding in Jesus, okay? More specific. Abiding in his love. And he says, as the Father has loved me, so I've also loved you. And now we can ask, okay, well, abide in his love. What does that mean? How do we do that? Let's keep going. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. And so he says right there, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. He says, abide in me. Gets a little more specific, abide in my love. And then he says, oh, how do you do that? Keep my commandments, and you'll abide in my love. Continuing to verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. So we abide in his love by keeping his commandments, and his commandment is, Love one another as I have loved you. And so that abide word coming back to we abide in him, we abide in his love, and we abide in his love by keeping his commandments, and his commandment is, Love one another as I have loved you. So it comes all the way back to his love. And so, like I said, abide. It's like, a, um, it's like a dwelling word. It's like a home word. So you abide in some place. Like, welcome to my humble abode. Uh, that's like where I abide, where I remain, where I dwell. Um, in Luke 24, uh, when Jesus is resurrected, he's talking to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then they get to this house, and he act, uh, it seems like he's about to go on. And they say, no, no, no. Uh, stay with us and talk with us. And then it says they all abided. Or Is that the abided, abode, obeyed, obeyed? I don't know. They all remained in that house together. And so there's this image of staying in that spot. And so dwelling, a dwelling word, remaining, making Jesus our abode. Don't move on from him. Stay in him. Settle down. uh, Move in. Make ourselves at home in his love. Really, it's kind of like, okay, what does that mean? Uh, Practically, we could talk about it as we're living from love, not for it. So if I'm Living from it, that means I'm dwelling in it. I'm going out living from identity that he's given me. Living from forgiveness, living from acceptance, instead of living for it. That out there, I'm trying to be accepted, I'm trying to be loved, I'm trying to do the things for God to love me. No, I want to remain in it, abide in it, live from it, instead of living for it. And he says that we're supposed to love as he's loved us. So what kind of love is this? How has he loved us? We get a little clue in verse 3, where it says you already are clean, which is tying us back to a previous chapter, John 13. So now we're going to, if you just flip in your Bibles just a couple pages, John 13, uh, we're going to look at that and how that connects with what Jesus just said here. And all of this is happening on the same night. As I said, this is the night when Jesus is betrayed by Judas and that he's arrested and then he's taken and he's put on trial, uh, basically a secret kind of rigged trial by the religious leaders. And then that next day he's crucified and he's died and buried. So this is like less than 24 hours before Jesus dies. This is the stuff he's saying. In John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, tell us why he's about to do what he's going to do. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now this passage is very famous. This is when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And it's interesting to see why he does what he does. You might be like, well, they got together for supper, and, well, all our feet are gross and dirty. This is a big deal. This is, you know, like Christmas dinner kind of thing. Like, this is a big deal, this thing we're getting together for. And like, there's no servant here to wash our feet. Um, What should we do? Because they're wearing sandals, walk around in the dust, they're all yucky. And so you might think Jesus, why why does Jesus put the serving towel on? Why does he get ready to wash people's feet? You could say, well, he looked around, he thought, well, none of these guys are going to do it. I guess I've got to do it. Or he looked around and was like, oh, I'm going to love these guys by doing this, which is true. But why does Jesus get up to do what he's going to do? He knows he's going back to the Father that, he knows who he is. He's accomplished his work. And it's just an interesting way of like, why does he now move into this position of very humble service? It's not because he doesn't know how important he is. It's not because he doesn't know that he's the one that's going to save them, that he's their Lord. It's because he does know it. And from that place of knowing who he is and that what he's done, he's going back to the Father. He does this and he's about to die. And he's his, his final acts, his final hours, his final words. And so in verses 4 through 5, it he says he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them, around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what am I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And so Peter, you see, Peter's like, he gets it. He's like, you're our teacher. You're our rabbi. You're our Lord. You're not the one that should wash my feet. If, if anything, one of us should be volunteering to do it. And Jesus tells him, if you don't let me wash you, then you don't have any part with me. You don't let me share with me. And so then Peter accepts it. And then Jesus does this little debrief with them in verses 12 through 17. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, so that you should do just as I have done to you. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he asked them, Do you understand what I've done? I'm your Lord, I'm your teacher. I've washed your feet, and now you ought to wash one another's feet. Remember imitation and practice. I'm giving you an example, and this goes back to other passages like Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And Jesus, two of his disciples, James and John, come and say, "Jesus, we're heading to Jerusalem right now, and we know. And in, in their minds, they think that means we're about to boot out Rome. We're gonna, your, God's kingdom's gonna come to earth, and we're gonna be reigning and ruling in Jerusalem. You're gonna be the king." And they come and say can we sit at your right and your left hand? We want to kind of be like your lieutenants or generals or whatever. And we want to sit. And he's, Jesus is like, do you understand what you're asking? Can you drink the cup? Basically taking on uh, the penalty for sin that I'm going to drink. They have, but they have no clue what they're asking. They say, yeah, we are. And he says, well, this is how this works in my kingdom. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must become the servant of all because I've come not to be served, but to serve. And so you see here, Jesus Be an example of that greatness that I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give you an example. Then verses 18 through 30, we're just skipping down there. We're skipping a few verses here. Uh, Actually, I'm not going to read over that, but he talks about the one who's going to betray him. And he's not surprised by Judas' betrayal that Judas goes and tells the religious leaders, hey, this is where Jesus hangs out at night. That's where you can arrest him without being in the spotlight of the crowds that love him. And Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And he's not surprised, but yet, he still washed Judas' feet. That Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet because Jesus had washed them. This is Jesus loving even his enemies. In verses 31 through 34, it says, When he had gone out, referring to Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all the people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so he says, I'm giving you a new commandment, which isn't like, you're kind of like, well, love others as I've loved you. Isn't that kind of what it's been all along, God? Like, love, love God with all your heart, with all you have, uh, and then love other people as yourself. That's kind of, that's always been there. So why does he just call it a new commandment? Um, well, he changes the standard. Instead of loving other people as you want to be loved, he says, love other people as I have loved you, that now I've done this thing to you, for you to imitate. It's a new standard. And he says, by this all people will know you're my disciples. And it's interesting, I like to think of that verse as, what would you fill in for that this? Uh, by this, by our great worship services, by our great help and social concern in the community, uh, by all the money we give to, to causes in the world, or the church, or whatever, by uh, me not swearing, or me you know, not getting drunk, or me having all these you know, religious practices in my life. Is that how people will know that we're Jesus' disciples? No, he says, by this, the world will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in verses 35 through 38, Jesus says, Peter's going to deny me. Peter says, I'm not going to deny you. I'm, you know, he's, I'm not going to deny knowing you. And he says, no, you're going to deny me three times. And so Peter denied Jesus with clean feet. All the other disciples abandoned Jesus, so they abandoned Jesus with clean feet. Jesus loved people that he knew were going to abandon him, deny him, and betray him because he knew who he was, who he was with God. But notice what's required to be connected to Jesus. That what does Peter need to do? He says, don't wash my feet, Lord. And then he says, if you don't wash me, you have no part with me. And if Peter had kept refusing, then he wouldn't have had his feet washed. And what Jesus says is, uh, what's uh, required to be connected to him is consenting to him, permitting him, allowing him, saying, Yes to him, accepting, receiving, letting. To what? To let him wash us. And really, this is an image. He tells them, you don't understand this fully now, but you will understand it. He's really giving them an image for what's happening when he dies on the cross. When we say, yes, Jesus, I accept and receive that you have died for me in my place. It's us consenting, giving permission, allowing, letting Jesus pay for our sins. And if we will not, then we have no part with him. It's very intimate. We talked about it last week. Very intimate and vulnerable. That image of you know, it's kind of like hard to have an intimate, vulnerable picture of like, well, he's up on that cross and it just looks horrible and awful and painful. And it can we can we, there's the awfulness of it. But then what he wants us to picture is on that cross. What is he doing? It's us sitting here with our sins. We're supposed to picture happening is when he died on the cross is he's there washing us of our sins and this intimate and vulnerable that you have to like, Peter had a hard time with it. No, you're not going to wash me because it's vulnerable. Um, even if it was a one of the disciples to another disciple with a peer, that would be vulnerable. But this is his Lord and teacher and then Jesus washes and you just, have to, you just have to let him. Like the dirt, you're not taking it off. The dirt of sin is that Jesus says, if you will not let me do this, if you will not be vulnerable with me, we have no part with each other. And the hardest part of the Christian life is not living a good life, but admitting that we haven't lived a good life and that we need Jesus. And Jesus says if we refuse to let him wash us, we're not connected to him, we're not a disciple, we're not a Christian. It's non-negotiable that we have to say yes to him. And Jesus says if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself. And fundamental to following Jesus is denying ourselves. And Jesus defines that as, Uh, saying no to trying to save myself. If you're going to try to save your life, he says, by saying, no, you can't wash me. No, I'll clean it up myself. Then he says, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for me, then you will find it. So we have to deny ourselves our efforts to save ourselves. And it's so hard to admit that we need saving. And in this image, both the washer, Jesus, needs to be humble, and both the washed person needs to be humble as well. The washer and the washed both need to have the humility to to Allow this to happen. And so he says, love one another. And this is where we're getting into what this means for us as a community. There's uh, 59 one another's in the New Testament. This is one of, we've seen several of them. And I've got uh, a list of them loaded up on my phone. I'm just going to read some to you. So love one another happens lots of times. Wash one another's feet. Uh, Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Uh, Have equal concern for one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Uh, If you keep on biting and devouring one another, you'll be destroyed by one another. And carry one another's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgive one another. 59 of them. I don't know how many that was. 20, 15, 20. But you go down that whole list, and this is where it comes to. As Christ has loved us, so love one another. That we're called to be an as Christ community. That you're called to be an as Christ person. That you're called to an as Christ marriage, an as Christ family. That as Christ has done to us, we now do to one another. And all the one another's in the New Testament, you can put them all under the heading of loving one another. What does it look like to love one another? All those things, bearing, forgiving, compassionate, instructing, teaching. And Jesus has done all of them to us before he asks us to do them to one another. Another example of something that Jesus has done to us already is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that this is the fruit that God wants to grow in our life, uh, but if we look at all these terms, they're all relational. And sometimes we can be like, well, I need more patience. And, you know, that's what we always tell kids, right? You need to wait. You need to have patience. you got to wait to open your presents. And that's, that's true. And we do have to wait for things like that in life. But this is a patience, a relational patience, having patience with one another, gentle with one another, joy with one another, not just this, all this stuff detached from relationships. It's how love feels and what love looks like. And we could ask, well, how do you actually grow in patience? The best way to grow in patience is to be in situations where you need patience. And specifically in situations where you need patience with another person. You grow in patience by being put in situations where you need patience. You grow in gentleness by being put in situations with other people where you need gentleness. But Jesus is already in a relationship with us like that. And it's Jesus' patience with us that gives us patience to have with one another. And a really great exercise uh, to grow an awareness of Jesus' love is whenever there's somebody who's hurt you or you're frustrated or you're annoyed or you're sad uh, that you're like, I don't want anything to do with them, a really great way to turn towards God to receive from Him uh, what you need from Him is to ask yourself, well, how many times have I done what they're doing to me? How many times have I done that to Jesus? How many times have I done that to God? How many times have I taken a hundred times to be told, not to do that. How many times have I ignored God or ghosted God, not texted them back, you know, spiritually? How many times have I walked away? Have I not put the time in? Have I not listened to them? How many times have I you know, ignored him and not been connecting with them? Now I can receive, okay, Jesus, you've loved me despite all of that, and now that gives us a love that we can give to other people. And Jesus both knows you the best, and at the same time loves you the most that there's nothing hidden about you from him. But this isn't to say that we're never disappointed with Christian community. We're supposed to love one another, and when you get in Christian community, you'll quickly discover, wow, these p- people don't perfectly love me, and that you're going to get in situations where you're disappointed. And disappointment with Christian community is the golden opportunity to love others like D- Jesus, because Jesus, we're always going to fall short of perfect love for one another. And if we could love one another perfectly, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our failures to love other people perfectly. And as Christ has loved us in our sin and our failures and our mess and our brokenness, we love one another in our sins and our failure and our mess and our brokenness. And we can ask again, how will the world know we're his disciples? It's that we are loving as he's loved. We're loving one another as he's loved us. And the truth is we never outserve and we never outlove Jesus. That he's always served us and always loved us more than we'll ever serve or love someone else. He's always humbled himself more, denied himself more, sacrificed more, lost more, gave up more, laid down more. And look, we saw him say knowing he's going from the Father and he's come he's come from the Father and he's going to the Father. He has all of that to lay down. He is the son of God in the flesh and he has more to lay down than any of us and yet he goes and does this act of love for them. And we need to be far enough into Christian community for people to disappoint us. That sometimes we can kind of like try to keep our lives not intertwined with others, but we need to allow ourselves to be deep enough into Christian community for the Christian community to actually disappoint us. And I want to say, can I make a radical, maybe radical statement, maybe not, that you can't obey Jesus if you aren't in Christian community. Now I'm not saying you can't be saved, although the New Testament, specifically John, I was just reading this morning in First John that it was saying if you're not loving other people, then you don't know God. Or if you're not loving, and not just other people in general, like yeah, I send some money to humanitarian aid things. It says, No, if you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, he says you do not know God. You've not been loved by God. And but I'm not saying that, I'm not saying you can't be saved if you don't obey if you aren't in Christian community. I'm just going to take a little step back from here and say you can't obey Jesus apart from being in Christian community. That all those one another commands are directed, yes, to people outside the church, yes, to your family, yes, to your spouse. But it's all one another in the Christian community. And we're called to live from being washed by Jesus. And that washing, you think of it, Jesus is doing a physical act for them. So that's one thing is that we're called to love one another by washing each other physically, you know, practical needs like helping each other when somebody's sick or a car won't start or shoveling, like those practical things. But then there's also the relational washing that when other people disappoint you and hurt you, that we come to them and say, I forgive you, which is washing them clean of their sin, that we should be a community where we're constantly washing one another clean of the sin we've committed against the other person, the disappointment. And Christian community should be the safest place in the world to be real, to fail, to not have it together, to fall apart, to sin, to struggle, and to doubt. And only if we'll be real about those things can we be fully loved. I want to share with you a quote from a guy named John Mark Comer. He's read, uh, written some great books. His most recent one is, uh, oh shoot, uh, "Practicing the Way." Uh, and he taught. I saw this quote on his social media this week. And he says this, Everyone always follows someone or something. Put another way, we're all disciples. The question is not, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? We all follow. We all aim the attention of our mind and the affection of our heart at someone or something that we think or we believe will make us happy and bring us peace. And whatever you aim the trajectory of your life at will determine who you become for better or for worse. And then he says, I am one of many people around the world and down through history who has found Jesus of Nazareth to be the best way, truth, and life on offer. To follow him means to apprentice under him. It means to reorganize your life's priorities around three driving goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do as he did. And it means following what he called the way. And this series is about what it means to be a disciple. We said that what is a disciple? It's someone loved by Jesus. How do we make a disciple? We need to be real so we can be loved and be changed. How do we know we've made a disciple? This morning we're talking about it's by becoming more loving. You know you're growing as a disciple of Jesus by your love for God is growing, your love for other Christians is growing, and your love for the lost and the broken in this world, that Jesus had great compassion for the world, a world separated from God. And Jesus invites us into life as it's meant to be, the life that we're made for, the good life, the blessed life, and learning a new way of life from him, of how to be in relationship with God and each other. And the degree to which you're able to love others no matter what is a reflection of the degree to which you've received love no matter what from Jesus. But because the person who best loves no matter what is the one who's been loved no matter what. And so if you want to be more loving, maybe you hear all this, okay, we've got to love one another. No, the way to become more loved, well, sorry, yeah, yes, love one another, but not... Here's all the list of things that we need to do love one another. Start doing it. Uh, The best way to become more loving is to be more loved. That you're not going to be more loving unless you are more loved. And so if you find, man, my love for God has grown cold. My love for other people has grown cold. that I just kind of want to do my own thing or I'm feeling upset and hurt or disappointed. The best thing you can do if your love for God and others has grown cold is to warm yourself by the fire of God's love for you. Be real, be loved, be changed. And being real is how we open ourselves to be loved. Being loved is the only way to become more loving, and we're loved into loving. Loved people love. That as we're loved by Jesus, as we're loved by one another, because they're bringing Jesus' love to us, now we become more loving. Loved people love. Love is the fruit of being loved. There's this book, you might wonder, why this, maybe you didn't wonder at all, this campfire of God's love, this (laughs) image I've been using and it, I, I I got not, it came to me from reading this book, this this term that this person uses. When it's called Thirty Years That Changed the World. And it's 30 Years of the Early Christian Church. And basically this guy's looking through the book of Acts, um, which is the history of what the church did after Jesus was resurrected and, and went back to the Father. And he goes through and he's not doing like a commentary on what does it all mean, but he's looking at principles for what was the life like that they had together and what would that, how would we embody it today. And he talks about that they worked outwards from a warm center. What was their approach to sharing Jesus with the world? As They worked outwards from a warm center. I just want to read you a little bit that he said about it. Jesus had concentrated on getting the center of his little band hot and well-informed and he moved out from there. Their fellowship, this is describing the early church now, their fellowship was so vibrant, their lifestyle so attractive, their warmth so great that it was infectious. People were drawn in as to a vortex. And so he says, first get the center of the fire hot and people will be warmed on its outskirts and drawn in. That's where this image of a campfire of God's love came to me. Hudson, you guys know, it's like every couple weeks, Hudson gets the little fire bug. Actually, it seems like every day now. We get off the bus, Daddy, can we make a fire today? So I've been having this image in my mind for like the past several weeks and just thinking about how fires work as we're building these fires in the cold. And, you know, there's a way to get fire happen happen really fast. Pour a bunch of paper on there in the fire pit and light it. It'll light very fast, be very bright, very big, and then it's gone in about 30 seconds. If you want a fire that's really going to last, that's going to be strong, that will burn through basically anything you pour on it. I mean, Hudson and I, we talk about, like, okay, he, you know, we kind of talk about things like they're alive. So we call it a hymn. So, this is probably too weird. Let me just, like, Brad, <laughs> we'll talk about the fire and he'll be like, is he okay, daddy? Like, is he strong enough? It, it's me. I'm the weird one. Um, Katie can attest. But anyway, so we'll talk about, well, is this fire strong enough? And now once it's strong enough, we know well, you can basically pour anything on there. You can put leaves on there, and sticks on there, and boards on there. And it's going to like chow through it, even if it couldn't do it when it was very small. And so this campfire of God's love that we don't want to be a church where it's like a bunch of paper and we light it up and it has all this activity and flame and then, it, and then it's gone. We want to be this strong fire, this hot center that we become this campfire of God's love in a dark and cold world so that we can invite others to warm themselves by, uh, by the fire and to pull up a chair. And we find joy and peace in being real and being loved. And we can ask, well, what kind of community would this message that we're talking about create? This message that God himself became human in order to take our place. And then he was raised from the dead. There's no abiding in Jesus and receiving from him if he's still dead. He's resurrected from the dead. So now we can receive him like a a branch holding onto a vine in this receiving relationship. And in a world of hate and division and rejection and broken relationships, church is a community where people see and experience something different. Not that we don't sin. That's not the difference. You come into a church community and it's like, Wow, none of you guys are sinning. This is awesome. No, that can't happen. The difference is in how we treat one another when we do sin. That what do we do when someone disappoints us or hurts us or lets us down? You know, as I was, and I was thinking about saying this. You know, All this is kind of it's giving us a vision and a fire uh, for wanting to live community together. But as I was thinking about this, we were just going through 1 Thessalonians on Thursday nights. Um, and when Paul writes to them, he tells them, I want you to love one another You're already doing it. I don't need to tell you, but do so more and more. When I think of this church, I I think of a welcoming, caring community uh, that embraces people when they come in. And it's like, let's do that more and more. Let's keep building the fire making it even stronger. There's this book by a pastor named Jonathan Edwards. I think I mentioned it last week. It's called Heaven is a World of Love. Uh, That when we are in heaven, when we're in God's presence, love is what's there. And heaven comes to earth in a taste, a little taste, as churches love one another, as Jesus has loved us, that these little pockets of heaven, this little campfire of heaven's love, that God can actually make us into that by his spirit dwelling in us. Let's pray. God, you've loved us more than we can calculate, more than we can grasp. We pray with Paul in Ephesians 3 that you would help us know uh, your love that is beyond knowing. We can never know it uh, fully. God, would you let us have a taste of it as we gather together, as we see one another treating our weaknesses and our failures with tenderness and kindness. God, would you make us a campfire of your love in this community, in this county. In your son's name we pray, amen.